For those of you who remain, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Just before we uh, move towards considering not just this passage, but really the entire book of Exodus, just want to highlight one other announcement that you may have seen in the newsletter on Friday. Um, I'm sure you, like me, if you've been following the news, your heart is breaking for what we hear about what's going on in Haiti. And especially with us kind of following the story of these communities, and especially this orphanage, we were grieving over, over the destruction and devastation that's happening. If you are wanting to uh, participate in helping, obviously praying is where we begin, and hopefully you already are praying, as, as am I. But uh, I want to let you know that in two weeks, our Benevolence Fund offering, which is normally for our community and congregation, will be specifically devoted to um, the, the support to support the relief efforts in Haiti. And if you're wanting to do something even more immediately, you can look at the e-newsletter, and I sent a link 
for where you can go if you want to do something in the meantime. But, but we continue to be partners with our brothers and sisters in Haiti, both in prayer and then there are other ways that we can support them. Well, turning, uh, again, not just to this passage, but as we're working through kind of the story of the Old Testament, really all of Exodus this morning, would you please uh, join with me in prayer? Father, we, um, we consider even just the words that were read and are reminded of how, how glorious and holy you are. And how in these moments at Mount Sinai, what a terrifying thing it was to hear you speak. And Lord, we come in fear of you, but not fear out of terror, but fear knowing that you are the God who loves us, who is our King and who is our Father. And so we ask that you would also speak to us this morning. Uh, We need to hear you. We need to draw near to you. And this only happens as you enable us, as your spirit gives us open hearts and open ears, and as your spirit enables me to speak. Please help me to speak faithfully to your word and help us to draw closer to you through this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is this this point in the New Testament, in Ephesians, that's perhaps one of my favorite in all of the Bible, where Paul has prayed this remarkable prayer. He's praying that we would know Christ's love, that we would be filled with God. And then after he finishes praying, he kind of pauses. And he speaks and he tells us that God is able to do way, way above all that we ask or even imagine. It's just this remarkable statement. And one of the, you know, the, the implications, I think, of that statement is that we should assume that, by and large, when it comes to God, we think too small. Uh, we, we think too small in our prayers. We pray for things that we think are polite, easy things for God to do when we don't pray really what's in our heart. We, we're too small in our imaginations in the way that we think of God. We kind of shrink them into to a size that, that makes sense to us. And I think we think too small even when it comes to the stories we tell, the story of what God has done and the story of what God is doing in this world and in our lives. Last week, I mentioned that I think probably the story of salvation that most of us are familiar with is the one that has been oftentimes summarized in different evangelistic presentations like Four Spiritual Laws or Evangelism Explosion. There's really kind of just like four points to this telling of the story that God loves us and made the world. We sinned against him and deserve judgment, but God sent his son and if we believe in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. That's, that's the most common way the story of salvation is told. And, I, and it's not my intent at all to criticize that summary. It is a fantastic entryway into knowing who God is and what he has done for us. But it is only an entryway. And if this is the story we tell ourselves of what salvation means, Well, our minds are thinking way too small because God's salvation is far bigger than just rescuing us from the things that we are afraid of. God is bigger than also even just giving us a wonderful life here on earth and enjoying the comforts of suburbia, although that's a gift as well. God has a bigger plan for you and me, and his plan
plan is to give us himself. His plan of salvation is to become fully and completely our God and for us to become fully and completely his people. And that's what we see in the story of salvation. We have over the last few weeks, about a month ago, we began this, this journey of saying, what is the story the Bible tells? How does it all fit together? And you might remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw how God steps into humanity's failure and he makes this promise to Abraham that everything that was lost through sin, he's going to give back. He's going to make this great people. He is going to be their God and he's going to give them a place. We keep on summarizing this as God's people and God's place under God's rule. And last week we saw how God formed a people. This week we see what God does with that people, how God draws near so that he can become their God. And what we see is that his work of salvation, his work of redemption is not complete until he is truly their God and they are truly his people. So as I said, our focus is gonna be on Exodus. And you might remember where we left off last week, that after a long time in Egypt, God's promises we see being fulfilled, and there is this great nation, this great people of Israel, all who are descendants of Abraham. And my guess is you know what happens next, because this is, if there's any most famous story in the Old Testament, it may well be this one. How Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, makes Israel his slaves. And as they cry out in agony, God hears their call. And he, and he meets with this man, Moses, in a burning bush. And he says, you need to go and in my power bring this people out of their slavery. And Moses is reluctant, but eventually he does it. He goes in and he says to Pharaoh, and we all know the words. Maybe we've sung them or we've heard them, let my people go. That's the words that we know. But Pharaoh doesn't. Pharaoh is you know, reluctant Pharaoh is more than that. He's skeptical. He doesn't know who God is. So God shows him through plague after plague, frogs and bugs and all sorts of things until finally in agony, Pharaoh relents and he sends Israel away. And just a few moments after that, he sends his army after to try to stop Israel. But God opens up the Red Sea, brings Israel through, brings the waters back, and they escape. They are brought out of slavery. This is the story we know. We, there's movies about this. It's, you know, whether it's the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments or whether it's the cartoon The Prince of Egypt or whether it's the Ridley Scott movie that's recent. It's a really famous story. It's a great story. But let me tell you that oftentimes as we are aware of this story and even as we see it told, an important detail is forgotten. When God says, let my people go through Moses, that's never where it ends. We only know that phrase, but that's never where it stops. Every single time God says, let my people go so that they may serve me. That's an important difference. Because oftentimes we see this as this great story where, where Israel once had to serve somebody but now they're rescued so that they never have to serve anyone again. But that's not actually the story. The story is, I am going to take my people, God says, out from under your terrible leadership, and I'm going to bring them so that they're no longer serving you. They're serving me instead. And that's why when we get to the passage that was read, we see God saying, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles', eagles wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples. Do you hear that? God is saying, I rescued you to bring you to me so that you could be mine. To just bring God's people out of danger is not the whole story. It's just half of it. God's redemption is not completed until he becomes their God and they become his people. So the story continues in Sinai, in the passage that was just read. And and we, we hear that, you know, God speaks to Israel in a terrifying fashion. There's thunder, there's fire, and this massive mountain. It's, the voice is like thunder, the voice is like trumpets, and God is inviting Israel, saying, let us form a covenant so that I can be your God and you can be my people. And after a little while, the people of Israel are so terrified by what they hear that they say, yes, we want this God to be our God, but Moses, you go on up and you talk to him because we can't bear it anymore. And so Moses does that, and Moses is up at the top of the mountain meeting with God for weeks. And for reasons that I don't think are ever going to be quite clear to us, after four or five weeks probably, Israel just becomes, I don't know if it's distracted or bored or confused, but they come to Aaron, who is like, who's Moses' brother, and they say, Aaron, we don't know what's happened to this Moses guy. Make us a statue so that we can worship God. So Aaron does that, and he makes this, this golden cow. And, and, and even as they're right beside this fiery, smoky, earthquaking mountain where God is, they see this small golden cow and they worship it. And it makes no sense to us. And God is furious. Understandably, they have just said, yes, you will be my God. And already they're turning their back on him. And so God says to Moses, Moses, you are going to have to lead this people away from here and away from me. I, I'll send an angel so that you can get the land that I promised, but I won't go with you, because if I do, these people are so sinful, I might destroy them. Now now consider what God is saying he will do. He has already rescued them out of the danger that they were in in Egypt. And now he's saying, and he will give this people the beautiful land. You know, it's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. We could say it's leafy suburbs with sidewalks in every street and kids playing Little League. This is a great land that they're being rescued to. So what does Israel do when they hear this, when Moses tells them that this is what God is thinking? Do they go, oh, hey, problem solved. That makes things simpler. We get what we want. We don't have to worry about God. No, that's, that's not at all what it says. It says, well, you know, it says, when Israel heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Even Israel, the people who are so faithless, they realize that if God is saying, I will give you this land, I will rescue you, but I will not go with you, that is a terrible thing. Even they realize that what they needed more than anything else is not just a rescue from something bad and not just the beauty of a good land. They needed God. They knew that their redemption is not complete until God becomes their God and they become his people. So we know Moses pleads, pleads with God, and God answers and says, I will go with you. And as a response, we have the building of the tabernacle. Now, if you've ever tried reading through the book of Exodus, here is probably where you get slowed down. Because the first half, it moves quickly. I mean, movies are made about it. And then suddenly you've got these blueprints that take chapters to describe of this tent, this tabernacle that is to be built. 
What's going on? Like, what's, what's the devotional moment that we can find from here? Well, there's not a good devotional moment, but there is something important that is being said. What we're supposed to understand here is that an embassy from Eden is being built. You know what I mean? Like a foreign embassy, from what I understand, the moment you step into a foreign embassy, you are stepping into foreign soil. And that's what's going on here. A foreign embassy from Eden is being built in this tabernacle. Why do I say that? Well, there's a lot of clues that point us in that direction. First, in the, in the way the building of the, the instructions of how to build the tabernacle is described, we see, and the Lord said, do this. And the Lord said, do this. Seven times it says that, which is exactly the same way that creation is described. And God said, and God said, seven times. And at the very end of the, and the Lord said, said you have a description of the Sabbath rest that they're to enjoy, just like in the creation account. And as the construction is being described, it says the Spirit empowers the people who are making it. Just as in the creation account, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. He is the one who's bringing about this creation. What we're supposed to understand is that the building of the tabernacle is this kind of redoing of creation. And the tabernacle itself shows this as well. I mean, what do we remember about Eden? Eden is described as a place that is filled with pure gold, and it has these trees. And when Adam and Eve sin and are sent away, you have these cherubim, these fiery creatures who are guarding the way. And what do we see as the tabernacle is described? In the very center, in this place that's called the Holy of Holies, all of the metal is pure gold. And the lamp is shaped like a tree. And guarding this room are cherubim, both the statues on the ark and also inscribed in the curtains. We're supposed to see this tent as a piece of Eden. It's a sign to Israel. They're, they're not able to step into it. No one can step into it except for a priest once a year. They're still kind of barred from entering Eden, but now at least Eden is amongst them. And it's a sign to them of this is where God is taking you. God is wanting to give you Eden back. But it teaches them more than that because what do we see in this Eden embassy? The very climax of the book of Exodus is not when they come out through the Red Sea. It's not Mount Sinai. It's chapter 40 at the very end. It says, after the tabernacle is complete, the glory of the Lord descends upon the tabernacle. And God is dwelling with his people. And so every time they look and they see this piece of Eden in the very middle of their camp, what they see is they see the sign of the glory of God. And what this is telling them day after day is the way back to Eden is the way back to God. It's God who's at the center of Eden. If they are longing for the, the harmony and the peace and the glory of Eden, what they're longing for is to be brought back to God because God is what defines Eden. God is the one who lives in this Eden embassy in the tabernacle. And what they're seeing is that the completion, the fruition, the fullness of redemption of what God is doing is to bring them back to himself so that God can be their God and they can be his people. Now, why do I keep on bringing up this, this same idea? What's, what's the significance? Well, this is telling us something important, not just about the people then, but about us. It's telling us about what we were made for, what God is doing in our lives. Because we're made for more than just being rescued 
from death and hell. I mean, those are important things. I don't want to diminish. Forgiveness is so, so important. But, but it's a thin gospel to say you don't have to worry anymore, and that's all there is. And we were meant for more than, than even enjoying the, enjoying the promised land of the western suburbs. I mean, I, I'm saying that obviously somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but we, I mean, yesterday, were you outdoors? It was a blue sky, crisp fall day. The, the leaves were everywhere. It was beautiful. There is something so good about where we are living, but we're meant for more than that. And my guess is you know that, that you feel at times a restlessness. Sometimes in this restlessness, it just feels like things are too much. There are too many things to do, too many responsibilities. Meanwhile, you are so aware of your own feelings and inadequacy, and you're carrying around grief. It feels too much. And yet at the same time, at, same, at times, it feels like it's too little. Like there should be more, more meaning, more significance, more hope. And what your heart is telling you is that you were meant for more than just living in this place. You were meant for God. You are meant to have God give himself to you so that God is your God and that you are his people. And that's what the story of Exodus is all about. We see God's unfailing commitment that he will not rest until he has truly become the God of this people, the God of us. And it's not just in Exodus we see this. We see this throughout the Bible. If we just continue to Leviticus, we could see that Leviticus is really all about that. I mean, we get confused because there's sacrifices and uncleanliness and, and priests, and we don't know what's going on, but it's all about the problem that we who are sinful need to be near God, but we can't because our sinfulness stands in the way because God is holy. Leviticus is all about saying that there needs to be some solution to this. That's what the sacrifices, that's what the priests are about. And it's all pointing forward to what we see in the New Testament as the solution. How God sends his son, the Lamb of God, to be our great priest. To be the sacrifice. To cleanse us. Because we know we need cleansing. I, my guess is sometimes when you are wanting to pray, you feel shame. And you realize that you should be someone better than you are to be able to speak to God. And that's right. But that's dealt with. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world came to take our sins away so that we don't need to be afraid, so that we not only are rescued from all that is bad, but that a way is open to us so that we can draw near to the God that we need. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, we right now, in this very moment, through Jesus, we are able to draw nearer to God than Moses was when he went on to Mount Sinai, or than the priest was when he went into the tabernacle. God is in our midst. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. We are able, every time we pray, to draw near to the God who has redeemed us. That's what Jesus has done. 
And that, that's what God is continuing to do. He is continuing to work to make us more and more his people. And he will continue to do that unrelentingly for all who are his until, until we are fully the people that we are meant to be. So what does that mean? What does it mean for us to truly be the people of God? What is it that God is doing? How is he changing us? Well, If we consider what we see in the account of Exodus, I think we can see three things, three things about what it means for us to be God's people. First, it means us trusting in God's commitment for us. And one of the most repeated things we see in Exodus is God reminding his people again and again of his commitment to them. When he he comes to Moses, he says, I am the Lord of Abraham, and I have not forgotten my covenant. I will rescue you. When he brings the people out and he speaks to them on Mount Sinai, he says something very similar. He says, you have seen what I did. You have seen how I brought you out on eagle's wings. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And his point is, see how committed I am to you. I am the God who makes promises. I will fulfill them. And that's exactly what Israel fails at again and again. I mean, when, when they get to the Red Sea, they're like, oh man, I wish we could just go back right now. When they get out of the Red Sea and they find themselves hungry, it's like, oh man, I wish we just, we're back in Egypt. We should just die here right now. And then when they're at Mount Sinai, they're like, we need a cow to worship. Again and again, they just aren't willing to trust that God is committed to them, that he's not going to leave them or forsake them. Let me say, that's what it means to be God's people. The work that God is doing in us is he is teaching us that he is committed to us. Do you know, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit who is in you, if you are a believer, cries out, Abba, Father. And what it's doing is, it's te- what he's doing is he is teaching our heart that God is that committed to us. He is so committed that we can call him Father in an intimate way. Because it's not enough just to know the fact that God loves, that God forgives. You need to know that God loves you. That he is deeply committed to you. Do you understand that? The Spirit is teaching you that. He is crying out that reality to it so that you can grow in the trust of God's commitment to you because that's where being God's people begins. But it's not where it ends. We also see that to be God's people means to have God change us. After God rescues his people from Egypt and he brings them to Mount Sinai, what does he give them? He gives them the Ten Commandments. And that's not because God just loves rules. It's because God loves what is righteous and what is good and what is beautiful. And he wants his people to be lovely, to be beautiful, to be righteous, to be the people they were created to be. You know, I think we get this wrong. A lot of times we kind of have this, kind of like these two sides of God. On one hand, God is loving and merciful. On the other hand, he's holy and he makes commandments. And we feel them like battling each other and we hope that God's love wins out. But that's not how it is at all. Because God is so loving, because he is so committed to you, he is not going to rest until you are the beautiful, righteous people that he has created you to be. The commands come out of love, not out of condemnation. 
I mean, when he, if we were to look at the commands of Leviticus, you know, let me tell you some of the things that you will find. You will see rules for how to deal justly in business, ways to make sure that the labors are not taken advantage of, protections for the orphans, for the vulnerable, for the, for the refugees. This is not just because God likes having all sorts of regulations. This is because God loves his people and wants them to be righteous and just and beautiful. And that's true for his involvement in your life as well. God loves you too much to let you stay the way that you are right now. He is your God. And he will not rest until he remakes you, until he makes you into the person you were created to be. And that can be an uncomfortable thing. It means hearing commands that we don't always want to obey at the time. It means being brought through suffering that reshapes us and renews us. It means having the Holy Spirit in our hearts do the uncomfortable work of helping us to see just what we did that was so wrong in that last moment and feel grief over it and repenting. Because if God is your God, he is going to change you because he is committed to you. But there's more than this. It's not just for God to be our God. It's not just a matter of, a matter of teaching us to trust his commitment. It's not just a matter of, of, of changing us. But the supreme aspect of what it means to have God as our God is for us to know God and to see his glory. There's this beautiful moment in the story of Exodus where after Moses has pleaded with God and God has says, yes, I will go with you. Then Moses asks, now show me your glory. And there's no preparation for that. There's no expectation. It just kind of seems to come out of nowhere, but it's not out of nowhere. It's because Moses realizes that the fullest expression of the relationship between God and his people is for God to reveal himself and for his people to know God and delight in his glory. Now God says, you can't see my fullness. In, in the Old Testament, anyone to see God in his fullness would die. And so Moses is only able to kind of like see a shadow, the backside of God. But, but scripture tells us that we are different, that because Christ has come now, we see the glory of God in its fullness in the face of Jesus. And so our privilege, the treasure that we have, is we are invited to know, to experience to delight in the glory of God, because he is our God. You know, sometimes that, that experience of God's greatness can, can come in dramatic ways. There's um, Pascal, who was a mathematician in the 17th century, um, also was a, a devout, devout believer. And when he died, there was found, sewn in his jacket pocket, this this reminder of something, of an experience that he had. And it said, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past 12, fire. God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and not of the philosophers and savants, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God had opened his heart and opened his eyes so that he could see in a, in a deep way the glory of God and know God. The Chicago evangelist Moody, D.L. Moody has a similar story. He says, 
this one event, one day, oh, what a day, I cannot describe it. It is almost too sacred an experience name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Let me say, this isn't just stories that, that famous Christians tell. I, I've, I've, I've heard from some of you share of similar moments where, where somehow the reality of who God is and his love just became etched on your soul in a powerful way. Now let me say, it's not always this dramatic. God, God shows himself in different ways, but let me say, God's desire for you, all of us, is to experience in this deeper way the reality of God, to know him, to feel the reality of his love. I say that because that the prayer that I alluded to at the very beginning of this sermon is a prayer for exactly this. Paul says, I pray that you would have power, that, that Jesus would dwell within your heart. And what he means by that is that, that the reality of who Christ is would be near and dear to you, that you would know it. And, and he prays that in this way that you would know the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of Jesus and that you would be filled, that you would be filled with God's fullness. It is a prayer for us to know, to know God and delight in his glory. That is the supreme privilege of what it means to have God as our God. This is what you and I were made for. And let me say, God will not rest until this is true of you. Do you know God? We can pray together this prayer, Lord, open my eyes, open my heart, dwell in my heart that I might know, I might know your love, that you might fill me with all of your fullness. And when we pray, you know why we can pray with confidence? Because God is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or even imagine. And he will not rest until you are his people. In just a moment, we're going to be coming to the table. And this is a table, this is a meal that God gives us so that we can draw near to him, so that more and more we can be his people. It's, it's a meal that reminds us of his commitment to us. It's a meal that changes us. It's a meal that enables us to experience the reality of his love. But as we draw near, I invite you just to take some time to prepare our hearts. Maybe as we have thought about God's commitment in redeeming us to make us his people, you have thought about ways that you, that you want to change, sins that you want to confess, or maybe you're just wanting to pray, asking for God more fully to be in your life. Let's take some time in silence, and then I will lead us in prayer after some time in silent confession. Father, you know 
our sin. Lord, you know, even as we can in some ways feel incredulous at Israel's faithlessness, then when we look at our own lives, we realize that we are no better. That we turn away from you, that we fail to trust in you, that we resist the work that you are doing to change us. Father, we confess our sins and we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would change us and make us more your people. We we realize that we do not deserve to come near to you. But Lord, you have drawn us near to yourself through Jesus. Lord, help us to know your love. Even as we eat and as we drink, please convince us even more deeply of what Christ has done for us, of the depth of his, of your love for us, that we might more fully be the people that you have called us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel again from Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, we have been forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God.